0: Good morning, Colonial. Well, if you can remember the year 2020, that's when I started a series through the letter of Colossians. And today is installment number five. All right. So uh, the last year has been a very, very busy year, uh, wrapping up my degree at VBTS and so I've not felt much mental freedom to uh, offer to preach on Sundays. Um, that, by God's grace, is a chapter closed. That is just paying dividends, man. Uh, but uh, I get to resume a little bit helping out the other pastors, especially Pastor Brent, since he is our primary preaching pastor. Um, I'm grateful for his desire. Uh, the way he sums it is, um, it doesn't matter the personality in the pulpit as long as they're preaching from the Word of God. So the next man up, uh, let's, let's look at Colossians together. Um, I'd, I'd invite you to turn to Colossians chapter 2. And I'm going to give us, uh, for the sake of uh, how long it's been since I've last preached to you, it's been about a year. Um, I'm going to give you a little bit of a review of where we parked in Colossians. Uh, last time we were looking at verses 24 through 29 of chapter 1, we'd just gotten through, you know, we'd already worked through um, Paul's thanksgiving and his prayer, and he's laid out what we just sang this morning, a hymn to Christ. He's laid out the supremacy of Jesus. And then he took a moment and applied it, and you too, um, this applies to you. His supremacy over your life and his forgiveness of sins can apply to you, Colossians. Real quickly. And then he turns to talk about his own ministry and how he, he, he t- counts it a joy to suffer on behalf of the body of Christ, right? So that's, that's where I'll re- review for us uh, this morning. So Paul expressed his joy to be able to suffer for Jesus, for his body. He recounted the, the origin and the nature of his calling there in 24 through 29, um, the origin is it was a stewardship from God given to him, and the nature of his calling, what he was supposed to do he, he was supposed to preach the gospel to the Gentiles god's plan for redeeming the world that he uh, that he gave us a glimmer into in the book of Genesis in chapter three had been a mystery up to this point up to the, before uh, the cross. It had been a mystery hidden. But hinted at from time to time through various prophecies, through typological individuals, covenants, institutions. But now it was plain to everyone. It's been, it's, it's been publicly declared. God's plan to redeem the world, Paul connects in, in, in this section of 24 through 29. This is what it is. This is what God's mystery is. It's Christ in you the hope of glory. Christ in you Gentiles, not just the Jews. Christ is that mystery. The beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Well, then Paul went on to explain his apostolic mission. Okay? Um, and he shared it with the other, uh, the other apostles as well. You see that in verse 28. His job was to proclaim Christ. Warning everyone, teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. That's the apostolic mission. I want to present everyone before God mature in Christ. This is the goal for which the apostles strive. This is the goal for which Paul strives. And in our passage this morning, chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, this is the goal for which Paul strives for the Colossians. So there's a slight shift that occurs then in the focus from the previous passage in chapter 1 to our passage this morning. And the the shift is a focus shift from general ministry concerns to specific ministry concerns for the spiritual maturity of those actually living in this Lycus Valley um, where Colossae uh, is located. Let me uh, emphasize the effect of this shift. Okay, I'll, I'll I'll kind of draw it out by changing a couple words. So I'll, I'll start by reading the wording of, of 128. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. And I want you to know, just how hard that struggle is for you, Colossians, that we may present you mature in Christ. That's the sense of the shift that's happening here as we, as we begin chapter 2, uh, 1 through 5. So in this passage, Paul's concern goes from abstract to concrete, from general and impersonal to specific and personal, from his ministry to people everywhere to his ministry to those who live in the Lycus Valley specifically in Colossi. So um, let me lay out real quick for you the way I see the structure of this passage, um, and then we'll get into walking through verse by verse. So if you ask me to summarize what, what the the whole paragraph was about, 2, 1 through 5, I'd, I'd say it to you in a sentence. It would go something like this. In this paragraph, Paul is seeking to bolster the Colossians' faith in Christ through the knowledge of his personal investment in them. All right. Paul seeks to bolster the Colossians' faith in Christ through the knowledge of his personal investment in them. So you can think about that and see if that squares up with what you see in the text. So I'm going to make three points today. I'll spend a larger proportion of time on point one, so don't get discouraged if we're nearing the end of time and I'm still in point one. And then the other points, two and three, are much, much briefer. Um, but point one, I'm going to discuss Paul's primary purpose for struggling. His primary purpose. Paul intends the knowledge about his personal struggle for the Colossians to encourage them toward full assurance in Christ. That's going to be verses one through three. All right, and then the second point is his secondary purpose. So Paul has a primary purpose in this passage, and he has a secondary purpose. And that secondary purpose is he's sharing this knowledge that he's struggling with them so that they would be on guard because there are some among them who would delude them if they had the chance. And finally, the third uh, point that we'll discuss tonight is Paul's confidence in his struggle. Finally, he expresses joyful confidence that the Colossians possess the necessary character to stay firm in Christ. Um, I would paraphrase the the function of this paragraph in my own words. This is how I'd say it. if I was if I was Paul talking. This would be what I would say. I would say I'm I'm working tirelessly for you to become mature in Christ because there is a real threat. But listen, we're in this together. You're doing great, and in Christ you have everything that you need. That's the the function of this paragraph in Paul's letter. Well, let's look at um, our first point, the primary purpose of Paul's struggle. Verse 1 reads, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face. Paul identifies three groups here, okay, the Colossians, the Laodiceans, and a third group, all who have not seen me face to face. Now, I think it's best to take this third group not as a group distinct from the Colossians and the Laodiceans, but as a broader group, including Colossae and Laodicea, um, as well as others local to the Lycus River Valley region. We learn that there's another city in the area at the end of Colossians. You look at chapter 4, verse 13. um, You can read that, that Paul is commending Epaphras for working hard for all those who are in Colossae and Laodicea and Hierapolis, a third city that's mentioned um, we, can, uh, we can see that that's also in the Lycus Valley. Well, in our text in verse 5, there seems to be support for, for taking this, all those who've not seen me face to face, as a broader category that includes Colossae and Laodicea. In verse 5, he mentions the fact that he's absent from them in flesh. Though I'm absent in the body, yet, yet I'm with you in the spirit. It just kind of supports the idea that he, he's never been there. And, uh, so he's, he's including Colossi and the Laodiceans as all those who have not seen him face to face. Remember, uh, it's Paul, Paul didn't plant these churches. It's actually likely that his delegate, Epaphras, is the one who, who either planted or was involved in these, uh, churches, uh, starting and growing. So Paul is struggling for people, perhaps most of whom he's never even met. And I think you just need to just tuck that away. Um, as we consider how we would apply this passage. Paul is going through agonizing effort to minister to a people he's never even met before. Let's uh, look real quick at the, the identity of, it, of the struggle that Paul has. Paul doesn't really explain any further uh, the nature of this struggle in our text, besides from the fact of how great it is. Right, it's a great struggle. Yet um, he offers some clues throughout his letter of what that struggle might include. Um, Let me just give you three uh, as an example. It may be, it may include his struggle against false teachers. And and our passage right here today kind of gives support to that. Verse four says, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. Right? So right off he's aware that there are opponents. And so perhaps this is involved This is involved in his struggle. Or secondly, his struggle may be due to the fact that he's in prison. In chapter 4, verse 3, we can see that he says, because of preaching the gospel, I'm in chains. And then at the end of the letter, he reminds them, hey, remember my chains. So perhaps part of his struggle is his imprisonment for the gospel or his willingness to be imprisoned. And finally, uh, a third option might be his struggle in his prayer. It's actually this last suggestion that I think has the most textual basis. We can really like, see, this is is a way that that Paul is struggling for the faith of the Colossians. Paul had already informed the Colossians at the beginning of the letter how he and Timothy are praying for them regularly and constantly. Look at verse 3, chapter 1. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Okay, then look down at verse 9 in that same chapter. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will. Struggling in prayer is just how Paul describes the ministry that Epaphras had for the Colossians and for the Laodiceans, and the Hierapodans. Would you, uh, turn real quick to chapter four, verse 12? And you, you look at that. I want you to see it with your own eyes. Chapter four, verse 12, he's struggling for them, Epaphras is, to stand mature in Christ and fully assured in all the will of God. That fully assured word or group of words is in our text. This struggling is in our text. There's, there's much similarity with what Epaphras is doing for the Colossians and the Laodiceans with what Paul is striving for in the Colossians and the Laodiceans' lives. Uh, this passage, however, just gives us a little bit more explicit information. It, it, Epaphras is struggling through prayer. So at minimum, one big way that Paul is struggling for them is through his frequent and sincere pray for them. Though it may also include his um, imprisonments. His, his letter writing to encourage believers and to warn them of false teachers I may mean, also include his efforts to network with people and make disciples who will then go back and plant churches in their own regions. But regardless of however, or uh, uh, however of just what Paul's struggles involve, okay, that, that's a question we can kind of get some answers by looking at the context, regardless of what that is, and at minimum, I would suggest Paul is struggling in prayer. What's clearer from the text before this and in Ephesians 4, 12 and 13 that we just saw with Epaphras, so the 1, 24 through 29, and Ephesians 4, 12 and 13, where we see what the apostles strive for and what Epaphras strives for, is the purpose for why. Uh, he's struggling. Paul is struggling to present the Colossians mature in Jesus Christ. Mature in Jesus Christ with full confidence about what a life that pleases God looks like. Now, as we look at verse 2, we need to ask a question about the text that I think is going to help us determine Paul's emphasis in this passage. All right? Um, the question we need to ask is, how does verse 2 relate to verse 1? Right, maybe our first impression or the first thought is, You know, so it's for, it starts that their hearts may be encouraged. So he's going to give a purpose. And so, so what should we tie that purpose to? Is it Paul's struggle? That seems natural. And we're talking about why Paul is struggling. He's been really clear about it from the first section, 24 through 29, that they would be mature in Christ Um, That's, I think, a viable option. It's a a natural connection. Um, While that may be true, I would suggest to you that the emphasis seems to be on something a little bit different. And that is, the emphasis is on the desired effect that the knowledge of Paul struggling for the Colossians will have on them. Okay, that was a mouthful. The main verb in this section, it isn't, I struggle for you, that you may be encouraged. What's the main verb in this sentence? I want you to know that you may be encouraged. So I want you to know how much I'm struggling for you in order that your knowledge of the apostle Paul batting for you will greatly encourage your hearts, that I'm in this for you. I'm pulling for you. What effect might Paul be going for by telling the Colossians how hard he struggles for them? Uh, if you remember my illustration from over a year ago, uh, you, you would remember uh, I set up a situation where a mother is feeding you know her son a delicious and nutritious bowl of split pea soup. My favorite of soups. And uh, she says, it's good for you. It'll help you grow strong. Besides, I made it just for you. Well, she's trying to compel her son to eat the soup because she knows it'll make him grow. But to compel him further to eat, she adds the element of her personal efforts, her personal investment in this. Like, I did this for Mommy loves you. This is what Paul continues to do in this passage. He's already clearly laid out the worth and supremacy of Jesus Christ. But on top of that, as though it weren't sufficient in itself, and it is, so that's the whole point, he adds the personal touch of how hard he is working for them to make sure that the Colossians would stand mature in Christ and fully assured in all the will of God and not be deceived. So, Paul, in this passage, gives two main purposes for why he wants them to know how hard he's struggling, and, we, and we're still in this first purpose, okay, this primary one, and that's what we're going to uh, tease out a little bit as we look at verse 2, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So Paul wants to instill courage in the believers. He wants their hearts to be encouraged, and he's doing this by letting them in on how much he is struggling for them. The word encourage is pretty easy for us to uh, figure out in English. It means to place courage in, to instill courage And the way we use that English word, um, usually it's just just to make someone feel good or have confidence again, Uh, but as Christians, the thing that ultimately encourages us and stills us with confidence is something specific, okay? And Paul has been as specific as saying it's our hope, it's the hope of glory that we have in Christ, our ultimate hope and source of confidence comes from something far deeper and lasting than things or people that the world finds courage in. Colossians tells us that it's Christ. In him we have the hope of glory laid up for us in heaven. So how do you instill then courage into a believer? Well The text gives us the answer. By being knit together in love. This is how one another's hearts are encouraged. By being knit together in love. This is how it happens. The means by which their hearts will be instilled with courage is through the unity that the church experiences together with Paul and with one another as they love each other. Being knit together is a pretty easy image uh, to understand. Uh, the, uh, when you knit two pieces together, ideally you're taking two and uniting them in such a way that they're a seamless whole. They're just one now. Um, So we get the idea that expressions of love, like Paul's letter, as an instance, causes people's hearts to be knit together and, and feel one with one another and know that we're one in Christ. Tangible expressions of love for one another knit a group of individuals into a unit, into a family, into a church. The next clause... The ultimate goal of this process teaches something astounding that I think we need to, I think we need to pay careful attention to. So the goal of that process of being unified by love and thereby having our hearts encouraged is for the ultimate purpose of having complete confidence in Christ. So here, here's how the rest of verse two fits together. I'm going to take it like kind of, uh, clause by clause here. To reach phrase by phrase, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding. Let's just take that for a moment. How does that, what's going on with all those words, the ofs? uh, To have full assurance of something is to have deep conviction that something is true. Right? And Paul is saying that that deep conviction comes from understanding something. And he believes that to have deep conviction that comes from Understanding something is to be truly wealthy, is to have wealth indeed. Your being united in love with one another is designed to help you reach the great wealth that it is of having complete confidence about who you are in Christ. Now, uh, bear with me for a moment. I want to get a little bit into uh, the grammar for just a moment, and then I'll come back out. But there's actually um, no uh, word that that means reach necessarily in, in the Greek text. Okay, um, When you look at your ESV, it says, To reach all the riches of full assurance. Well, what, what the ESV is doing is they're actually translating a preposition. That means to or toward. And they're giving you the sense um, and reach is a great translation. Okay, so then why do I point that out? Because in the very next um phrase, we read, and the knowledge of the mystery of God's mystery, um, which is Christ. And what you have there with the word and is the same preposition to toward. So let me read it for you in a kind of a wooden way to help get to help you see um the connection here. Uh, that your hearts may be encouraged, be knit together in love toward all the riches of full assurance or to reach all the riches of full assurance, to reach the knowledge of God's mystery. Right? So I, I wish they would maybe have translated those parallel because what, what you have with this translation is the idea that there are two results of your, you know, being united in love one is to reach all the riches of full understanding and the other is so that you could have knowledge of God's mystery when the greek grammar i think suggests that they're actually one in the same reason that the the second instance is actually redefining the first it's just saying it another way so then what does it mean to have to have all the riches of full understanding of full conviction that come from understanding it's it's to know christ it's, it's to know what God's mystery is, Jesus Christ. As we saw in uh, verse 27 of chapter 1, God's mystery, his plan for the ages, once hidden but now revealed, is that the whole world, both Jew and Gentile, may possess the hope of glory, okay, by being united to Jesus in other words, Paul struggles for the Colossians that they would enjoy the full confidence of understanding all that they are in Christ, that they have everything that they need. As the believers in the church express their faith in Christ through loving one another, like Paul did through his letter to them, something incredible happens. People's faith in Christ deepens. People come to rely on Jesus in more meaningful ways as they experience Christ's love for them through his body. People whose faith was faltering find their faith bolstered. And in Christ, verse 3 continues, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden. Uh, one of the commentators that I read said this so well, I just want to say what he says here. Christ is the one in whom is to be found all that one needs in order to understand spiritual reality and to lead a life pleasing to God. You don't need anything else for the big questions in life. Where'd you come from? Jesus made you. Why are you existing? Jesus is sustaining you. For what do you exist? For the glory of Jesus. You get all that from Colossians from the mystery revealed. This has the effect of saying you you don't need to go searching elsewhere for understanding the biggest questions about life. In the person of Jesus has found the complete sum of God's wisdom and knowledge. There's an organic process through which Paul struggles to form this confidence in the Colossians. Paul knows that if the Colossians are going to continue in faith and have complete confidence that Jesus is enough, It's not just going to come from a letter from Paul with a lecture about Christ's supremacy. That teaching about Christ is absolutely essential. It's foundational truth about who Christ is. If you don't believe that Christ, you're still dead in your sins. Yet to continue relying on this Christ throughout your whole life requires merely more than merely knowing and rehearsing this knowledge like a creed. Because what happens if one morning you wake up and you feel, I don't want to affirm that. I don't want to believe that today. It doesn't feel true to me. What happens when a trial so huge broadsides you and you start to wonder if any of this actually makes a difference? You know, our faith may be strong in this moment, and I would guess that among us, there are a lot of us whose faith is wavering in this moment. Then what what chance do we going to have that we're going to make it to the end? Well, let me just assure with you right now that continuing in a life of faith in Christ is not accomplished by you or others. It's by God alone. God will see someone's faith. He'll be the author and the finisher, Hebrews teaches us. Yet God has ordained ordinary means to see that done. And one of those ordinary means that we're seeing in this text right here is believers expressing love toward one another in order to instill in them courage to keep going after Jesus. You and I, as we look for tangible ways to love one another and struggle for the maturity of one another, are one of God's means to keep us faithful to Christ to the end. We need each other to be mature in Christ. That is, if nothing else is remembered, would you remember that from this text? Just like Paul struggled For the maturity of the Colossians, you and I must struggle for one another's maturity and deep confidence in Jesus. So Paul's primary purpose then for telling the Colossians how hard he struggles for them was that they would have complete confidence in Christ. His secondary purpose then is in verse 4, that they would not be deluded. Um, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. Now, Paul doesn't spend much time here, and so I'm not either. He, he will have plenty to say about the false teachers. But we can learn at least two things about how um, they, were, they were operating from this verse. First, they were attempting to deceive the Colossians with what they were teaching. So there's some kind of trying to get them to believe something that looks like one thing, but in reality is something different. Secondly, what they're pushing sounds persuasive. In other words, it isn't outright lies uh, so that they don't absolutely just reject it. There's probably some good-sounding truth with a subtle twist. We'll get into how the false teachers were attempting to delude the Colossians in future sections, but for now, Paul is satisfied to make the connection for them that this is why it's so important that you are completely confident about Christ to see that Jesus is all you need, because there is a real threat, and some among you who don't actually understand the gospel, who don't actually have a relationship with Jesus, are going to try to persuade you to subscribe to some pseudo-Christianity that doesn't focus on Jesus, and consequently will fail to present you holy and blameless before God. Uh, In a concluding comment then, in verse 5, Paul wants to continue bolstering the Colossians' faith by expressing his joyful confidence in uh, their character, that they possess the necessary character to stand firm in Jesus. So point three is the confidence in his struggle, verse 5 here. For though I'm absent in body, yet I'm with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Paul immediately makes a concession. I'm not with you in person. He's not there with them, and likely he's never been there. Usually, one of the best ways to communicate your support for someone is to be there with them. But for some unknown reason, Paul has never made it to Colossae. Yet, he does not want them to conclude that it's because he does not care deeply about them. So he says, I'm with you in spirit. Paul's ability to be with them in spirit, even though he's not there in person, is probably a theological point he's trying to make with them. Even though they've never met, they are profoundly connected in Christ. As Paul is in Christ, they are in Christ. In a spiritual sense, he's there with them. Through Epaphras' report, he's tracking with them. He's watching how they're doing. Epaphras is giving him an update on, on how the faith of those in the Lycus Valley is. He's praying for them. His heart is with them, willing them to stand mature in Jesus. I think that this would have affected a great comfort to the Colossians to know that this is how the Apostle Paul felt about them. The Colossians' expressions of faith in Christ and love for others are evident to Paul. He referenced them in the beginning. He was giving thanks to God for them. Uh, thank God for your faith in Jesus and the love for others that it's producing and the hope that you have as a result. And it brings him great joy. And so the Colossians' faith is building up and giving Paul greater assurance in the gospel. Their spiritual lives are disciplined, he sees, he deems, and their faith in Christ is strong. Um, I think that last point you'll want to either just write down in your notes or just remember it. Uh, Because as we continue to look at what the Colossian heresy is, what's the problem they're facing, um, you're going to want to know how the Colossians are responding to it. Because some some people will will say, some writers will say that they were giving in, they were shifting from the hope of the gospel. Um, And others say uh, you know that there's there's no one there yet. Maybe they're on their way, but you need to understand how Paul views their character. Does he see them as having slipped, or does he see them as having uh, as contending carefully and just he's just warning them? That's a, a huge hint for you about the way Paul sees the Colossians there in an the earlier chapter one. Let me just take a minute, uh, colonial, uh, suggesting a couple ways that we can apply this text to us. Um. And then we'll wrap up. The biggest way that I would want to encourage us to allow this text um, to speak to us, and I'm trying to be guided, by what by what I see is the emphasis of the text, um, and not just you know a, a salient point in there. So I'll put it in a question: Could you describe your concern? and your efforts for the faith of your brothers and sisters in this church as struggling? I'm asking this of myself too, so I'll just use we. Do we own the confidence, the steadfastness that our brothers and sisters around us have as something that is worth struggling to attain. And I would just follow Paul's lead. What's really clear in this letter is, he, like Epaphras did, he's struggling in prayer. So how are we struggling in prayer for one another? If, in fact, as we struggle for one another, that our hearts would be encouraged, being knit together in love so that we could reach the full assurance of understanding, the knowledge of God's mystery—if—if if we want to attain that, how are we struggling uh, for one another? So, here, a practical way I could—I could suggest it is: uh, Do you have a church directory? <laughs> Let's just get really basic. Do you have a church directory? Do you have a list of our members? Um, we have our app. We have a directory using uh, the church center. You can. Uh, opt in to make sure you're one of the families that show up in there. Most of us are all in there, but I think there's a handful that still um, haven't just made that that move to opt into the directory. That is one of our best ways to to pray for one another, is to have a simple thing like a membership role. <laughs> Who's in? Right? And then here, here's what it suggests, is, is take that and then take Colossians in the other hand, And start praying. A lot of us will say, "Look, but I'm not sure how to pray for someone because I don't know them." Do you see how flimsy that excuse is in light of what Paul is doing here? I've never even seen you face to face, and you at least get their faith, right? So we pray for one another. And and I'll give you a suggestion. In 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 chapter one, Paul gives. He says, "We're praying." that you will understand God's will, so that you could walk in a way that's fully pleasing to him, fully pleasing to Jesus. And then he gives four practical things right away that he's praying for them. He's praying that they'll bear fruit in every good work. He's praying that they'd increase in the knowledge of God. He's praying that they would find their strength to endure everything in the glorious power of God. He's praying that they would be filled with thanks to God the Father who delivered them from the Kingdom of darkness, transfer them to the kingdom of light of his beloved son. Just an example of how Colossians could be a template for a way that you could struggle for the maturity of your brothers and sisters uh, here at Colonial. Um, I'd also push you to take your time in ABS Hour today as you start out the time. Um, maybe take this text and ask yourselves, what are some ways that we can be struggling for one another? We're actually actually agonizing. To make sure that everyone stands strong in Christ. And then just, just discuss that with your ABS groups this morning and see uh, where the Spirit of God leads us. Let's pray together, uh, and then, uh, we'll, we'll sing a final song. Father in heaven, we ask you that you would please take your word now and bless it. Make it bear fruit. Thirty, sixty, a hundred fold. I would pray such a thing with great confidence that that's according to your will, that you would bless the ministry of your word. Would you find in us good ground, humility, quickness to admit I've been wrong, quickness to admit I don't pray for my brothers and sisters, and then the courage to take the prompting of the Spirit through the Word of God and just take a small step of faith. So I'm going to start praying for my brothers and sisters. I'll start tonight. I'll start this afternoon. And Lord, I want to thank you for the great faith and confidence and love of all of those in this church body who pray for me and who pray for my family and for one another. Lord, I have been able to see the sweet, sweet work of ministry that many of our church do for one another through struggling in their prayers for one another's assurance in Jesus. We leave all this at your feet now. Please do incredible things with these ordinary means. In Jesus' name, amen.